Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tools tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market hello and welcome to the irish history podcast my name is finn dewar and this is the punishment episode four of murder at mother mountain now, if you haven't listened to the rest of the series, this podcast has lots of plot spoilers for earlier episodes, so it's probably worth checking them out first. If you are up to speed, you're going to really enjoy today's show. We're about to follow Ellen and William into the unknown. The trials are over, and now the punishment lies ahead. However, as you're probably used to by this stage, nothing in this story is predictable or straightforward. There's going to be no deep dive interview this week. That's because the one I had planned for this week has a few too many spoilers and I couldn't edit them out. So that'll be out after the finale next week. Now, while the final episode of Murder at Mother Mountain is out next week, I'm already working on a new series. That's a new departure. Now, the working title of that series is called In the Shadow of the Great Hunger, The Life of Olive Pakenham Man. And this is going to be so different to, in fact, most of the stuff I've made so far. Olive's life is hard to explain in a few lines. She was the great-granddaughter of one of the most notorious landlords during the Great Famine, a man who was assassinated. She was also one of the last generation of Anglo-Irish aristocrats. She lived through World War I, the War of Independence and the Second World War, all of which affected her. However, for me, most interestingly, is that her life is an insight into the decline and fall of the landed gentry in Ireland. These are Ireland's major landlords that once dominated life on the island. So lots of this series is going to be recorded in Olive's former home, Strokestown Park House, the National Famine Museum. And there I'll be looking at what life was like in these grand houses, explaining Olive's life and then how these once great families ultimately went into decline and eventually died out. It's a really fascinating story with lots of different angles. I think you're really going to like it. Now, the plan I have for this series is ambitious. I've already bought radio mics. Because of the nature of the interviews in Olive's home, these work really well. But I also want to get archival interviews with Olive herself. Now, using these is pricey. You actually pay by the second. So I just want to thank all the supporters because it's their support that's allowing me to take the show into new territory like this. Now, as a way of saying thank you to supporters, I'll be announcing the summer meetups in the next fortnight. Also, I have a major announcement coming about a supporters-only series that will be out in autumn as well. Now, if you want to support the show, it's really easy. Just sign up at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast and Acast Plus. 
By doing this, you get ad-free content, you'll get that series that's coming out in the autumn that will only be available to supporters and you help create series like this one, Murder at Mother Mountain, and that one on the life of Olive Packen and Man that's in the works. Now to today's episode. Additional research is from Liam Costello. Narrations are from Aidan Crone, Therese Murray. The theme tune is The Banks of Ceylon, performed by Nelny Cronin and played on the pipes by Liam Costello. By the middle of August 1846, Ellen Berkery had never been further from the community she grew up in. She was still only 15 miles from Toreen Bryan, but she was now languishing in the brutal surrounds of Nina Jail. The crushing silence gave Ellen what seemed like endless time to contemplate her fate. Having been convicted of aiding her lover, William Walsh, in the murder of her husband, Daniel, Ellen knew, despite everything she had endured so far, the worst had yet to come. Her lover, William, was due to be executed on August the 22nd, and after that, she was going to be transported to Australia. However, while Ellen was facing her darkest hour, little did she know that the faintest of hopes was starting to emerge from a most unexpected quarter. On August the 15th, that day, in what seemed like another lifetime, she had previously gathered on Mother Mountain to celebrate the Feast of the Assumption with her community. A letter was being composed, begging for leniency for Ellen. Perhaps it was those better days and the memories of those times on Mother Mountain that provoked its authors to write the following plea to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. The Memorial of Ellen Honora, Catherine Jeremiah, Andrew and William Burkery, all of Turin Bryan in the parish of Newport and the county of Tipperary. Most humbly sheweth that on or about the 12th of March last, the memorialist father was murdered and a person named William Walsh was charged, found guilty and was sentenced to be hanged. The memorialist's mother was arrested, it being considered by the memorialists that she was aware of the murder having taken place as she was the person who first gave the alarm and accordingly was placed on trial, found guilty and sentenced to transportation for life. Memorialists therefore most humbly implore Your Excellency to be pleased to order that their mother be sent to Launceston in Van Diemen's Land, where they have a sister now in comfortable circumstances and will be able to maintain their mother for life. She is a woman far advanced in years and not likely to live more than a few years, and that she shall not be at liberty to return again to Ireland, but to spend the remainder of her days at the above-mentioned place with her daughter, who emigrated as a free emigrant about four years ago. By Your Excellency granting the above request, you will have the prayers of six orphans who have been left destitute by the death of their father and departure of their mother. For Ellen's children to compose such a letter, appealing for clemency for their mother, who they had helped convict of aiding in their father's murder, must have been immensely difficult. Their plea was a strange one. They didn't want Ellen to serve her sentence in Ireland, but instead to travel to Australia and be allowed to live with a daughter there, which would save her from the rigours of the Australian penal system. This was the daughter mentioned in previous episodes, who could possibly have been born outside of wedlock, but all attempts to identify her in historical records have proved elusive. Now, Ellen herself was presumably oblivious to the fact that her children had done this. 
The last time she had seen them was when they had testified against her and she had told her own daughter before a packed court she regretted rearing her. During the following week, as this letter made its way to Dublin, nothing happened with regard to Ellen's case because all attention shifted to William Walsh. He had been moved from the main prison to the gatehouse and into a condemned cell in advance of his execution. These days were lonely hours for Walsh. Ellen was on the far side of the prison while the Nina Guardian, a local newspaper, told its readers his friends and relatives believed he deserved his fate. On August the 21st, William looked out from the narrow window of his cell as the sun set on his life for the final time. The next day, August 22nd, 1846, he would meet his maker unless something remarkable happened. On the morning of August 22nd, 1846, a small crowd gathered before the gates of Nina Prison from about midday. From his cell, William Walsh could probably hear the quiet murmuring. It was nothing like the huge numbers who had gathered for the last execution which had taken place in June. In that instance, the three condemned men, accused of being involved in the murder of an unpopular landowner, had become local celebrities of a kind. William was anything but. Before one o'clock, a journalist from the Nina Guardian joined those present to watch the proceedings. The small crowd had their eyes peeled on the gallows above the prison gate, eagerly awaiting movement from within the jail. The journalist recorded the scene. A few minutes after one o'clock, this wretched criminal was led forth to the front of the drop of our county jail and after a few seconds in prayer with clergymen, was launched into that from whence no traveller returns. He was a tall, stout man, well made and of impressionable appearance. He was deadly pale but met his fate with firmness of step and unfaltering courage. There were not many persons present at the execution of William Walsh besides the police and military and none seemed to feel any interest in his fate or sympathy for his untimely end. Walsh's execution was almost anticlimactic. There was no anger or revulsion from the crowd because no one was angered by his death. The governor of Nina Jail, Thomas Rock, later notified the authorities in Dublin Castle that William was in death, much like he had been at the end, alone. As per the judge's instructions, he was buried in an unmarked grave within the walls of the prison. That night, Ellen Berkery may have felt loneliness in its purest form for the first time, now that her ally, her friend and lover William was dead. However, later that week, the letter written by her children finally reached Dublin. As the officials in Dublin Castle looked into her case, their eye was drawn to one line in particular. She is a woman far advanced in years and not likely to live more than a few years. However, as we have heard in previous episodes, Ellen had by this point claimed she was in fact several years younger than she actually was and the officials in Dublin Castle appear to have realised this discrepancy and made a note of this section in the letter. It would be five days after William's execution that Ellen's future was finally decided. On the 27th of August, the authorities in Dublin Castle wrote four words on the appeal. No power to interfere. This was the end of the road. Ellen would serve her sentence in the penal colonies. 
She would suffer four more weeks in the cruel regime in Nina Jail in North Tipperary before she began her journey to the far side of the world. On September the 26th, 1846, she was taken from her cell and along with another woman, Mary Hayes, who had been sentenced to transportation, she began the first leg of what would be a long, long journey. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Two days after leaving Nina. Ellen reached the Grange Gorman female prison on the north side of Dublin on October the 29th at noon. Along the route, she presumably saw the full scale of the famine that was now engulfing Ireland. In 1846, the blight was even more serious than it had been in 1845. Ellen surely knew that the putrid remains of the potato fields on either side of the road was, in effect, a death sentence for many. Already, major violence was breaking out in the poor cities of the south as the poor made desperate but futile attempts to stop the harvest of being exported overseas. Inside Grange Gorman female penitentiary, Ellen faced another prison modelled along similar lines to Nina, high walls and an emphasis on silence and separation. However, the prison differed to Nina in many respects as well. Although exclusively for women, it was divided into two distinct wings. One part of the complex was for women serving prison sentences in Ireland, while the other was known as the Grange Gorman Convict Depot. This was where women sentenced to transportation were brought from jails across Ireland and assembled in preparation for their voyage. Here, Ellen learned the full extent of what now lay ahead of her. She was going to be shipped to Van Diemen's Land, a large island off the Australian continent, about three quarters the size of Ireland. The convict system there was very different to the contemporary prisons she had been in in Ireland. Very little of her sentence in Van Diemen's Land would be served within the confines of a penal institution like Nina or Grange Gorman. The island was almost an open-air prison where the women would work on farms or in the houses of free settlers who lived on the island. This convict system was structured around incentives. When the women arrived, they would spend the first six months in a conventional prison and if they were well-behaved there, they would be granted a probation pass which would allow them to be hired by local settlers. If they continued to behave well during this phase, they would then receive something called a ticket of leave, which granted them increased freedoms. For example, they would be able to choose their own employers. However, while on a ticket of leave, they would have to remain in Van Diemen's land. Finally, they would be granted their freedom. But when exactly this was, depended on the length of their sentence. 
Ellen, who had received a life sentence, could only expect to receive her freedom after 10 to 14 years, but she would never be able to return home to Ireland if she survived. It was with this system in mind that if time allowed, the women in Grange Gorman in Dublin were trained in trades that could prove useful when they reached Van Diemen's Land. However, when Ellen arrived on September the 29th, the prison was filling up fast. On that day alone, 49 other women, all bound for Australia, arrived from jails across Ireland. The following day, another 23 were brought in. Their time in Ireland was clearly running out fast. Indeed, in central London, at the Deptford Dockyard, workmen were completing the transformation of an old British Navy troop transport, the Arabian, to a convict vessel which was going to carry them across the world. By early October, the Admiralty had made their final appointments to the crew, and a few weeks later the ship made its way down the River Thames before crossing the Irish Sea to Dublin. With the departure now imminent, the enormity and finality of what lay ahead could no longer be ignored. If the women survived the three or four month journey to Australia, they would find themselves serving out their sentences in a hot climate, strangers in a strange land. Over two days on the 9th and 10th of November, the convicts, Ellen included, were transferred from Grange Gorman to the Arabian, which had docked in the port of Kingstown, which was later renamed Dunlera, outside Dublin. While the ship would not leave for over a week, the final day before departure was a painful one on convict ships. Abraham Harvey, the second officer on the Garland Grove, another convict transport in the 1840s, later recalled the heart-rendering scene prior to its departure from London in 1842. Poor old men and women, some of them coming many miles to take a last farewell of their erring daughters, and in most cases, never more to see them again on earth. Their friends were allowed to bring them any little thing for their comfort. I remember a little boy bringing his sister a stick of Spanish sugar and saying he knew she liked it when she had a cough. And many other little acts of kindness on part of their friends. These poor old creatures, when leaving the ship, in most cases were so much affected that they had scarce the strength to get onto the boat. It's very unlikely that any of Ellen's children would have travelled to Kingstown on that final day. Even had they wanted to reconcile with their mother, it was several days' journey through a country being wasted by famine, and they were now in a deeply precarious position. With famine stalking the land, they had far more pressing matters, namely survival. The Arabian finally weighed anchor on November the 22nd in what must have been an extremely emotional event for the women on board. Even for Ellen, who at this point had very little left of the life she had once enjoyed in Ireland, the knowledge she would never see, let alone set foot in the country where she was born, must have been hard. Furthermore, with no experience of sea travel, the prospect of spending three to four months passing through the North Atlantic in winter pressed heavily on their minds. Indeed, it was hardly any surprise that the ship's surgeon, Dr. Robert Wiley, noted how many suffered seasickness at the start of the voyage. However, once at sea, life on the Arabian had advantages over some of the prisons Ellen had spent time in. It certainly was more humane than Nina. Given the limited space aboard, it was not possible to separate the women from each other. 
Abraham Harvey, the second officer from the convict transport the Garden Grove, wrote about the living arrangements on board that vessel, which were similar to most convict ships. The fittings were, in every respect, similar to an emigrant ship, having two tiers of sleeping berths on each side, four abreast, each person provided with separate bed and bedding. These berths, designed to hold four women, were about six feet square, and while it may have been cramped, it was far closer to conditions that the women had lived in in their homes than the silent isolation in institutions like Nina Jail. While the women were locked below deck each night, they spent large amounts of the day in the open air above deck if the weather allowed. This was done to avoid the spread of disease. However, while the ship's regime allowed more communication between the prisoners, Ellen may have struggled to fit in with the other convict women the more they talked. Their life experience had been radically different to hers. Ellen had lived a relatively privileged life compared to many of these women. Before the ship departed Dublin, the Victorian obsession with records and control saw a log created with an entry detailing each woman, her physical appearance, her crime and details of her life. When Ellen was asked what her job had been prior to her arrest, she replied, none. This reflected the fact that Ellen didn't work for someone else, whereas most of the other women had been servants. Ellen was also literate, something of a rare skill among her fellow convicts. The different life experience was also borne out in their physical appearance. The average height of the women on the Arabian was 5 foot 1. Ellen, however, stood at 5 foot 5, reflecting the more consistent diet she had enjoyed throughout her life. And even though she continued to protest her innocence, despite the compelling evidence to the contrary, most of the other women had far more legitimate reasons to feel aggrieved at their sentence. In many cases, they were being punished because they were poor. The other women on board the Arabian included the 15-year-old Mary Sweeney, who had been convicted of receiving stolen goods, and the 26-year-old Dubliner Mary Regan, who had been transported for vagrancy. The eight-month pregnant Mary Curry had been convicted of stealing potatoes. Indeed, she was only one of three heavily pregnant women who faced the prospect of giving birth at sea. Others bitter at their fate included the four dairy women, Mary Ann McGinty, Eliza White, Nancy Mulholland and Jane Logue. They had been convicted of assault and larceny, but it was the fact that they were sex workers which seems to have led to their transportation. In his sentencing, the judge had spoken at length about prostitution being a nuisance and a disgrace which needed to be extirpated. While he couldn't hand down a sentence of transportation for sex work, it was clear that he was going to use a case of assault and larceny to rid Derry of these four women. Those who harboured the greatest sense of injustice, however, were surely the children on board. While 150 women had been sentenced to transportation, they brought 37 children with them as dependents. The oldest of these was Catherine Farrell from Wicklow, who was 13. However, the average age was just three, and many of the children were newborn babies or infants. In ways, the life that awaited them in Australia was even worse than what awaited their mothers. During the voyage, however, considerable effort and energy was expounded on keeping the women and their children healthy and well. Dr. Robert Wiley, the surgeon superintendent on the Arabian, kept a detailed account of the health of the women. Ultimately, it would be the children who preoccupied his mind most. His report of the voyage recorded, After being some time at sea, the seasickness having reduced the breast milk, 
The children were supplied with nourishment daily. One day, arrowroot with wine and sugar, and the next, boiled rice with preserved meat. Alternatively, during the voyage. However, this was a poor substitute for their mother's milk, and several of the children fell seriously ill. Ultimately, seven children did not survive the journey, including two of the three babies born on board. The deaths of the newborns took a serious toll on their bereaved mothers. Nancy McElrath, who lost her daughter Mary on February the 4th, 1847, became seriously ill the following day and had to be treated by Dr Wiley for three weeks for an unspecified condition. Psychologically, the journey was a strange and surreal experience for the women and embodied the profound change transportation was on their lives. As the Arabian travelled south through the Atlantic, the world as they understood it changed. The last vestiges of familiarity disappeared when they reached the Tropic of Capricorn in North Africa. There, the sun at midday would have been high in the sky rather than on the southern horizon. As the ship continued into the southern Atlantic, the sense of dislocation only intensified. In the southern hemisphere, the sun now appeared on the northern horizon. The women would never enjoy the familiarity of looking south towards the sun again. The seasons were also reversed in the southern hemisphere. While it was winter back in Ireland, by the time they reached the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa in January, it was the height of summer. After three months at sea, the voyage entered one of its most dangerous phases, when Dr Wiley identified what were deeply concerning symptoms in several of the women. I observed a petechia on the legs of two, and twelve to fifteen complained of sore mouths, and on examination I found gums sound, but some slight excoriations on the inside of the cheeks, lips, and on the roof of the mouth. This was the undeniable symptom of scurvy, the potentially fatal scourge of sailors. Caused by a vitamin C deficiency, it can result in teeth falling out, a general collapse in the immune system and eventually death. However, Dr Wiley was able to fall back on centuries of Royal Navy experience and began to treat the women effectively. Indeed, during their time on board the Arabian, many if not all of the women enjoyed better health care than they had at any point in their lives. Dr Wiley, the surgeon, later wrote, With two or three exceptions, they were as good and some in better conditions than that in which they embarked. This was a common experience on convict ships. Only one adult died on board the Arabian. This was the dairy woman, Marianne McGinty. She had masked the fact that she was suffering from TB to avoid being separated from a friend, and the condition was far beyond Robert Wiley's skills. For the other women, having a trained surgeon at hand to tend to any illness was not something they had experienced previously. Furthermore, bland as the ship's food was in the 19th century, many had been starving in that winter of 1845 before they had left Ireland. Having departed Dublin in mid-November, the Arabian finally arrived on the Derwent River in Van Diemen's Land on February 25th, 1847. However, despite having been on board for several months, the women were not allowed to leave the vessel. Indeed, having survived what was an ordeal of a voyage around the world, their punishment was only about to begin. The obsession with control, which had marked every step of Ellen's journey through the prison system, was, if anything, only accentuated in Van Diemen's Land. Some measures were sensible. A surgeon came on board to carry out a health check and make sure none of the women were bringing diseases with them. Dr Wiley also handed over his records from the journey with a report. Then, legal officials came aboard. 
They essentially interrogated the women and while their lives would, to a degree, start over in this new, strange land, these men were there to ensure that their crimes were one of the few things that did follow them. A key document created for all convicts, including Ellen, was the convict indent, which has been likened to a convict passport. This was, in many ways, Ellen's new identity. She received the police number, 825, was measured at 5 foot 4.5 inches, and her age was listed as 38, the new age Ellen had given herself the previous March in Nina Jail. She had, in fact, turned 44 while the ship had been at sea. In terms of a job, she now listed herself as a country servant with the word dairy entered afterwards. This may have been allocated to her by an official, or perhaps, after four months at sea, Ellen began to realise that her old life was truly over, and she started to think about what she wanted to work at once she was allowed. The picture we have of Ellen in early 1847 was fleshed out in a second document, the Conduct Register. This noted her physical features in detail, her complexion, the shape of her face, her nose, her mouth, her chin and forehead. This was all done to allow the authorities to identify her should she try and escape. It also captured a woman in Ellen who was starting to age. Her hair had been described as black-brown back in Dublin, but by early 1847 it was described as black-grey. Ellen was also allowed to state her version of the crime, so when asked what she had been convicted of back in Ireland, she said what were her only words recorded in history. Accessory to the murder of my husband. Some people serve notices to quit the premises on my husband. Because he did not go, they came and killed him in bed by my side. I am quite innocent of the crime. We had been married 25 years. While she continued to protest her innocence, there were signs that inwardly at least, Ellen had changed fundamentally. When she arrived in Van Diemen's Land, the authorities also noted a series of dots on her face. Ellen had a tattoo. These were relatively uncommon. For example, seven of the 149 women who survived the voyage on the Arabian had tattoos. What the dots on Ellen's face meant wasn't recorded. Perhaps it was a memory of her lost family, her community, maybe William Walsh or a fellow convict, or maybe just something to pass the long hours on board the Arabian. However, it represented yet another step away from the life she had once known. Tattoos were considered in wider society as a symbol of criminality. Such a mark would have been unimaginable to the Ellen who had grown up, the daughter and then the wife of comfortable farmers back in Tipperary. However, what had happened in the last year of her life meant that that time and place was over and gone forever. The tattoo confirmed Ellen's identity as part of what many considered the criminal class. However, the tattoo may have been a rash move. One day, Ellen might serve out her sentence and she might want to forget this chapter in her life. However, the tattoo on her face made this impossible. However, in 1847, envisaging a future was probably very difficult for Ellen. She had been transported halfway around the world while the famine was tearing the heart out of the society she had grown up in back in Ireland. Four days after the Arabian reached the Darwin River and the women had been finally processed, they stepped onto solid ground on March 1st, 1847. The children, save the newborns, were at this point taken from their mothers and sent to an orphan school. One of the few mentions of the Arabian in the local press contrasted the fun of a local sports day in the town of Hobart to the sight of the children from the Arabian 
being taken to the local orphan school. The splendour of this entry was pleasingly contrasted with the hearse-like van of the female house of correction, filled with young children just imported by the Arabian, destined for the orphan schools. Indeed, these children would be treated almost like criminals themselves, as many believed crime to be a hereditary trait. When John Franklin had been appointed Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land, a friend had written, voicing similar sentiments. The sins of the father are really visited upon the child in the corruption of his breed, and is the rendering impossible. Many of the feelings which are the greatest security to a child against evil. Meanwhile, mothers with babies were taken to a special nursery where they would remain together with the infants for a few months until, eventually, the children would be taken to an orphanage as well. The remaining women, Ellen included, were taken to a new prison, yet another ship, this one called the Anson. This was what was known as a hulk, an old convict ship which had been fitted out as a floating prison and anchored in the Derwent River. This was where Ellen and the other women would spend their first six months and then, if they were well behaved, they would be granted probation passes which would allow them to be hired by local free settlers in Van Diemen's land. This floating prison was stricter than the regime on the Arabian but it was still far more relaxed than what Ellen had endured in Nina Jail. When it had been opened two years previously, a local newspaper, the Launceston Examiner, detailed the conditions on board. An interesting and highly important experiment is now in progress on board the Anson. This vessel is moored in the Derwent, near Risdon, and contains accommodation for about 600 prisoners. However, there was a more humane approach evidenced by the attitude of Dr and Mrs Bowden, the couple who managed the Anson. Life wasn't easy for the convicts by any means, but it was not the crushing regime of Nina Jail. Of Mrs Bowden, the Launceston examiner said, She treats those subjected to her control as erring children. Like a judicious parent, she encourages good resolutions, commends industry and rebukes indolence. While she condemns a refractory spirit, she has a kind word to every obedient, well-behaved prisoner. There was even a degree of compassion in her approach. She has shown that though apparently cast off by society, she is not friendless. That there is one interested in her welfare who will cherish her progress in the path of virtue and sympathise with her even in the punishment she may have incurred. However, better as this regime was, Ellen would soon be moved off the Anson. What lay beyond this was an unknown. Join me next week for the final instalment of Murder at Mother Mountain as we follow Ellen through the penal system in Australia where uncertainty and a strange form of redemption awaited her. Until then, Sloan.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.